Well, before we read Mark 5, 1 through 20, let me just kind of open it up in this way. Uh, If you were to read the Gospels for any length of time, uh, for any just a few minutes, uh, you would immediately be confronted uh, with this idea of angels and demons, right? It's not too far into um, any of the four Gospels that describe the life of Jesus that were, were introduced to angels, right? The angel Gabriel came to Mary and declared to her that she was going to have a baby. And then Joseph wanted to uh, divorce her quietly. And so an angel came to Joseph. And um, you can't read the Bible very long without touching on an entire realm of invisible, angelic, and demonic, and spiritual forces. Uh, as a matter of fact, John, uh, 1 John verses three, chapter 3, verse 8, describes one of Jesus' missions like this. 1 John 3.8 says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Right, so the lens is kind of pulled, it's focused a little bit, and the curtain is pulled back that we see that one of Jesus' greater missions is to destroy the work of the devil, which is the work of sin in your life and in my life. And of course, Jesus accomplished victory over the devil at where? At the cross, right? The power of sin was removed. The power of death was removed. The penalty of death was removed for those who approached Jesus on the basis of repentance and faith. Their sin is wiped out. And so the the work of the devil is broken at the cross, and yet we still see the influence of that. Now, to us, this is a very difficult concept. Uh, I visited with a missionary from Nepal about six months ago, and he met with several pastors in the area. And as he began to describe the work that takes place in Nepal and around India and in other places where he had served, he brought up this term that I had forgotten from our seminary uh, experience, but it's the forgotten middle. And he said that most of the world dwells um, not in this middle ground, but in this uh, forefront, uh, this sort of base level ground where the rest of the world understands the spiritual realm as Uh, spirits and good spirits and bad spirits, the spirit of that tree um, over there. We kind of stay away from that tree because there's a spirit in that tree and the spirit of this rock or this water or this mountain or they, in a much more connected way than we do, um, describe their life in these terms. And it's a very natural experience for probably 80% of the world. Not so much for us, Uh, in the Western world or in parts of Europe, but in in our part, we're kind of in that forgotten middle. The the lower level um, is this idea of uh, uh, physical concerns. The higher level is that of spiritual realm with uh, eternity, heaven, Jesus, God, the Bible, all those sort of higher things. But this middle ground, this forgotten middle ground where they uh, are in awareness of spirits and demons even though we sort of intuitively you know me just talking about this isn't a shock to you i don't see any jaws on the ground talking about angels and demons because you're familiar with the bible you've read these things before uh you understand this now you may have not been a part of some sort of exorcism i mean your only sort of experience with anything like that might just be some horror movie that you've watched on tv or or some bad claymation kind of a completely fake Hollywood rendition of, of some horror movie. 
that's probably the limit of many of our experiences here. But, but listen, this is not um, as big of a deal when you travel to different countries and you go on mission trips and you begin to really see the influences of darkness. Now, some of you in the room have real encounters with real darkness. I don't mean to discount any of that. I'm just saying, by and large, our culture doesn't see a lot of this on a day-to-day basis. But even though that, we intuitively know something about these unseen spiritual realities. Well, in our study of Jesus' life, we, we have to come to grips with this. All right, you, if you're going to be faithful to the Scripture, you can't mythologize angels and demons. You can't make uh, sense of Jesus' life and the, the majority, a big chunk of his, uh, you know, a big chunk of his life is in confrontation with spirits, right? You would have to remove whole pages and paragraphs of your Bible if you were to remove all of these instances of Jesus' encounters with demons. And so we have to have a basic understanding of Angels and demons. And so this morning I'm going to answer all your questions that you've ever wondered about all those things. It's, just, it's all right. I've, I've got all the answers. And, uh, and so we're just going to walk through that very, uh, very simply. Uh, you know that's not true. Um, so let me just kind of start us off, uh, just to pique your curiosity with a couple of, of questions. Um, how did Jesus respond to and navigate through a world of demon-possessed people, (laughs) of unclean spirits. How did he do that? Another question. Why don't we really see demon-possessed people in the Old Testament at all? I mean, there's a few cases here and there, but it seems like every page you turn in the life of Jesus, there is a confrontation with darkness, right? There's a demonic um, spirit that is throwing someone into a fire or someone's foaming at the mouth or, or a man is out of his mind with a legion of spirits like we have here uh, or uh, Jesus is rebuking a spirit and they're crying out loudly, I know who you are, you're the Son of God and Jesus is saying, come out of him and don't, don't let him speak. This is a natural thing that we see in the life of Jesus but you know, to us we don't really get this. How do angels interact with us today? Would we even know what a demon-possessed person looks like? I mean, this is kind of a joke at parties, maybe, that we use, but, but I don't know that we seriously can identify and say that is a definite sense of demonic possession or oppression or spiritual darkness, or can we even distinguish the variations, the shades of darkness that Jesus would have been able and his disciples would have been able to distinguish. Are we supposed to be doing something more, right, to help angels or to help demons, to help remove, deliver demons? Is there something that we're missing? What's our role in this angelic, demonic, spiritual realm? Um, All these questions remain unanswered for most believers today. It makes very little impact on your day-to-day life. Probably. probably You probably don't spend a lot of time in your day-to-day life just in Jesus' name, I rebuke you, demon of you know, bad financial decisions and chocolate donut eating. And you know, this is not the kind of thing that we deal with on a regular basis. Um, and so how can we navigate this? How does Jesus navigate this? So um, let's read the text together. We're going to make a few observations about this encounter with this man. And then I want to leave us with some bigger principles about 
really heavy on application this morning. I've got seven or so things that I, I think you can apply based on this text that will help you understand our interaction with this idea. So let's, let's read the text together. Uh, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. Let's pause there. Let's set it up. The Sea of Galilee, not really a sea. Think uh, Peace Valley Park. <laughs> I mean, it's like it's a lake. Um, you could shout from one side to the other. Uh, this past summer, I was um, on the Sea of Galilee, and it was a calm night, and I could hear and see Ty- the city of Tiberias. Uh, I could see the lights. I could hear people talking. Um, this is a lake. Um, I, I was in the water listening to conversations that people were having on the other side of the lake. So think Nakamixon, right? Don't think uh, Black Sea or Mediterranean Sea. Think a small lake. They refer to it as a lake, and they kind of giggle at Bible people who call this a sea. It's not a sea. Uh, it's a lake. It's a couple miles wide, and it's like seven miles um, from north to south, but it's just a very narrow, um, in some places you could just easily swim across. Um, but this is a lake, really. And, uh, and so Jesus, um, there are two, just kind of look at my dumb illustration here. Uh, this hand is the Syrian-African rift, and there's the African side uh, on my left, your right, my left, or whatever. And then there's the Syrian side on my opposite side. And these two... Um, these two continental plates are drifting against each other. And as they open up, there are two places where um, there are deep depressions. The deepest places on earth are the Dead Sea in the south and the sea uh, or the Lake Gennesaret in the north, the Sea of Galilee. And these places open up as those two continental plates shift. Now on the Syrian side, all of the rock is typically dark or black. And all of the uh, rock on the other side, on the Israel side of that divide, is white or light. And so this makes it really easy as you're walking around and you see the less expensive, more readily available uh, dark rock. If you were just a working man and you built your house, you would go across and build it out of the cheaper darker rock rather than the more expensive rock on the other side that had to be mined. And so this is kind of the the idea behind this Sea of Galilee, sort of the cultural components that we, that we understand from this. The other side, the Israel side, the lighter side, the rocks are lighter on this side, this is the side where Israel is. And on the other side is the Decapolis. It's a heavily Roman area. Uh, ten cities make up the Decapolis. Heavy Greek influence. Uh, this is not uh, the Israel side. And so Jesus spent most of his ministry on what side? On the Israel side, right? He was sent to the the lost sheep of Israel. And he had very little interaction with people outside of his country. So when it says that Jesus goes to the other side, when he's traveling to the other side, this is a textual clue that something different is happening. Something different is happening. Jesus is going to the side that a good Jewish boy wouldn't go to, right? This is the side where we're about to encounter a a herd of pigs. And Jews were forbidden to be around pigs. Um, And so this is sort of the uh, the Vegas side of Israel. that You just didn't go over there unless you were going to do something that you didn't want people to know about. And so Jesus is heading over to the other side, to the country of the Gerasenes. Now, right before this, in chapter 4, 
an interesting thing takes place. An enormous windstorm comes up that blocks Jesus as he's getting in the boat to go over to this side. A lot of commentators will say that this is a supernatural windstorm because immediately at Jesus' command, he rebukes the sea and everything goes calm. So the wind stops and then it says it went calm, meaning the waves stopped. You know what I mean? Have you ever been on a lake where it's glassy? Uh, even when the wind stops, there's, there's waves. But this instant, at Jesus' word, though not only does the wind stop, but the waves stop. And they're rowing quietly and calmly over to this uh, other side of the mountain, other side of the lake. Verse 2, And when Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, uh, but he wrenched them apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. I'll just pause there. A couple of things that we can see here about um, this man uh, who is possessed of this demon. Uh, A couple of signs that you can sort of point to that let us know when a person is demonically possessed. This guy um, was driven out of society. He was in constant torment cutting himself, um, destroying things, destroying himself, destroying... He, he had superhuman strength. He was not able to be subdued. Um, you can also read about uh, demons with superhuman strength possessing men in Acts 19. Do you remember the seven sons of Sceva, of this priest? They were Jewish exorcists, and they went and confronted this guy, and this guy was so uh, possessed with a demon that he beat them. Right? He beat them and left these seven sons naked and bleeding and they ran out of the house uh, without any clothes on uh, because of this guy. Uh, they have superhuman strength. They are self-destructive. They absolutely torment their host. There is a diminished uh, sense of mental capacity. They lose their mind. You remember in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar uh, he, he is so possessed that his mind is debased and he, he has to uh, sort of eat grass like an oxen. And, and he himself says, when my reason was restored to me. Also in verse 15 of this chapter, uh, verse 5, they see this man in his right mind. So we see with extreme demon possession, this loss of mental faculties and capabilities. Uh, in Matthew and Luke 8, Uh, are the parallel passages, we see that this guy has episodes of possession. We also see in Matthew 8 and Luke 8 that he terrorizes and abuses other people. In Matthew 8, 28, it says, others couldn't even pass that way because of this man. This is a a terrible thing. Uh, The way I described it, if I was on the lake and I saw Tiberius and I heard, you would hear this guy all over the lake, moaning and screaming and crying out, bouncing off the mountain. This would have been a, 
a nuisance, right? Imagine this guy living in your neighborhood, <laughs> right? Being chained up somewhere and you just hear him wailing and crying and screaming and hurting himself. This is a terrible thing. So it leads us to ask a couple of questions. Who are unclean spirits? Who are these things? What are these things? What are these demons? There's a couple of theories that I don't, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. Um, and there is hope, right? I don't want you to get too freaked out. I don't want to scare anybody. There's nothing to be scared of. Um, just listen and hang on with me. But here's the first theory. The first theory are demons are fallen angels. And we get our image of fallen angels mostly um, from a poem written in the Middle Ages. Uh, it's not a biblical understanding. There's only one or two verses that describe the falling of angels. And you may be surprised by that. There's, there's just not a lot of material that describes the fall of angels. But there is, in Revelation 12, one obscure passage, and it's hard to take things from Revelation and press it literally because it is apocalyptic literature. Uh, but in Revelation 12, uh, we see this war arising between, um, between Satan and between the angels and God. Um, and in verse 4, it says, His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child. This is all describing the birth of Jesus uh, and Satan's opposition to Jesus' birth. And so the only passage that we see about um, uh, Satan taking demons with him uh, is this one-third of the angels coming down with him. That's really all the biblical evidence that we have. But we also have extra-biblical information about Jews from this culture, not in the Bible, just theories about what the Jews who lived at this time, what they thought. So let me kind of tease that theory out, um, is that we don't know when these angels fell. We don't know if this was pre-creation, before men were created, men and women were created, or if this was after the fall, or if this, as Revelation 12 describes, it could have been around the time of Jesus' birth, which would explain why this concentration of demonic activity is centered around the life of Jesus. It's just not, we just don't know a lot, so we don't want to speculate too much. But there's a second theory that has some traction, that these are what Genesis 6-4 describes as the Nephilim. Right? You've heard that phrase before, the Nephilim, the Anakim, the Emim, the Amamim. You've heard all these phrases, the Valley of Rephaim. Anybody? All right. Is this familiar to anybody? When the angels of God came down and saw the, the daughters of men, they were beautiful and they had children by them. And Genesis 6, 4 says, these were the heroes of old, the men of renown. Right? These are um, superhumans. Who was probably the most famous uh, one of these giants? Right? Who? That was Goliath, right? Goliath was the remnant of these uh, Nephilim. He was the offspring of angelic um, and human 
cohabitation, right? This was the offspring, and they, they formed these superhuman people. Um, in First Enoch, this intertestamental writing, and I don't have time to tease all this out, but there's this idea that these are disembodied spirits of the Rephaim, these Nephilim. These are the spirits who are neither living nor dead, but they are sort of cast into the netherworld, right, as ruling over Sheol, uh, and that their discontentedness um, sort of thwarts the plan of God, that they are on um, the devil's side. And so this is kind of who these people could be, but we see a major concentration of them. Uh, Why do they show up mostly during the time of Jesus? Well, Revelation 12 gives us insight into that, that the devil's primary purpose is to thwart the plan of God to defeat sin. And the greatest way you can defeat sin is by defeating the one who defeats sin. This is why you remember your Christophanies, you remember your uh, when Jesus came, when Jesus was born. What did Herod do when he heard that the king of Israel was born? Right? He sent a death squad in to annihilate every child under the age of two. And Jesus' parents were warned in a dream to flee to Egypt and to get away and to move. And there's, there was a, a concentration of darkness that was trying to eliminate Jesus. What did Jesus do as soon as he was brought up out of the water of baptism? The Spirit sent him into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan himself. And three times Satan tempted him after this period of 40 days of fasting. And he offered him everything. He said, all the kingdoms of the earth have been given to me. And I have the power to do with them whatever I want to do. And so this idea that that the tempter is coming to destroy Jesus is concentrated. And one, one observer put it this way. Why do they show up during the time of Jesus? When the light is the brightest, the shadows are the darkest. Meaning that when Jesus was revealed, the enemy pulled out all stops and overwhelming darkness was concentrated in this one area. This could have been the reason why when Jesus was rowing over to have this confrontation with this man, that there was this windstorm and there was this great spiritual push against him, that immediately this man with this unclean spirit comes out. I don't have time to go through the rest of this. Uh, And it's really not helpful anyway. But if you have questions, we can talk later. Um, Continuing on in verse 6, when this demoniac sees Jesus from afar, he runs and falls down before him. Verse 7, and crying out with a loud voice, he says, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Just pause here. Um, this, what have you got to do with me? What have you have to do with me is, a, is an idiomatic phrase. It's a phrase that means uh, you and I have nothing to do with each other. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, what does light have to do with darkness? What does Christ have to do with Belial? What is he saying? He's saying these are two opposing forces. In the same way that I mentioned the Syrian-African rift, going in two different directions, made up of two different um, colors of rock, one black and one white. This is the same visual picture of what he's saying. What do you have to do with me? We have nothing in common. 
I am the embodiment of all things dark and wicked and evil and sinful. And you are the embodiment of all things pure and holy and godly and righteous. And this confrontation on the shore, this confrontation right here on the shore comes head to head with this guy sprinting up to Jesus and saying, what have you got to do with me? Why are you here? Why are you tormenting me? Matthew 8 and Luke 8 says, before the appointed time. There was a pointed time when, when in Revelation at the judgment where all these demonic forces of Satan will be defeated completely. The battle is already won. It was won at the cross. But now in the period between the final judgment and the cross, this period that we're living in now, the battle is over. We have won. Jesus Christ is victorious and he has set up his victorious outposts in places like this. We're just a little church in a gym, right? But, but this is an outpost of the coming kingdom. And Jesus said it's like yeast. It works its way through the dough. It's like a mustard seed. It's small, but it's growing. That all throughout the world, there are these outposts of righteousness of the coming future kingdom. And in the meantime, the kingdom of darkness is shrinking and it's a battle for the souls of those men who are in between. That's why Jesus gave us a mission and a mandate to reach the lost and to rescue them from darkness. That's the goal. That's why you're here, is to do the, the will of, the, of Jesus to make disciples who can make disciples who overcome and who win souls for Jesus, rescuing them from the kingdom of darkness. If you lose sight of that, then the enemy has you right where he wants you as useless to the kingdom, making no impact on darkness. So Jesus confronts him head on. And in this confrontation moment, the demon is screaming at him and Jesus is saying, come out of him. And Jesus finally asked him in verse nine, what's your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country, right? He had a place in that country among the the Decapolis, these 10 cities. And he's begging Jesus not to send him out of that country. Now, verse 11, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside and they begged him saying, send us to the pigs. Let us enter the pigs. Random, I know it doesn't make any sense. Why would they want to go from this dude into the pigs? What's the point here? Um, The point you'll see in just a minute um, when all the villagers and all the people come around to see what happens um, You'll see why they went into the pigs. Verse 13, Jesus gives them permission and the unclean spirits come out and enter the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000. That's a lot of pigs. They rush down the steep bank into the sea and drowned into the sea. There's really only one place on the Lake Gennesaret where this could have happened. There's only one cliff. There's only one place where the formation um, of the rocks on the shoreline. I mean, we know this. This isn't speculation. I mean, it's archaeology. There's only one spot where there's um, on that side, opposite of Capernaum, where Jesus came from, where there's a, a place where there's a cliff where this could have happened. Um, and it's, it's, um, it's in the northern corner, the northwestern, northeastern corner of uh, the Sea of the Lake Gennesaret or the Sea of Galilee. Um, and so they run off there and they drown in the sea. Verse 14, the herdsmen fled and they told it in the city and the country. And the people came to see 
what it was that had happened. This is like the middle of the night. And they came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had been who had, had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Lots of stuff happening here. I don't have time to bring it all out, but I want to move toward some application so that you can know what to do about this. Because in the end, you're going to say, what does this have to do with me? What am I going to do with this tomorrow uh, when I get up and go to work? Or what, what, what does this mean for me? A couple things I want you to see about Jesus. Jesus was sent to bring release for the prisoners. And this is a beautiful thing. Jesus came to declare freedom for prisoners. And there's no one more imprisoned than a guy like this. Do you remember the scene of the woman... Um, Mary, who um, came to Jesus and cried on his feet and washed his feet with her tears. Imagine the volume of tears that have to come out of a person when they cry. Have you ever seen that person cry this much? Who can cry enough volume of tears in a small space to wash his feet and then to use her hair to mop up and to clean off the dirt and then to anoint. And this wonderful worship experience happened. Why? Why? Do you remember why this happened? Because this woman was delivered from a legion of demons. Jesus came to declare release from people in captivity. There's no one in more captivity than those who experience this extreme form of possession. Jesus didn't have to go to the other side. Jesus' mission was on the west side in Israel. He didn't even have to go over there, but he goes out of his way to another country to rescue a man who is suffering from unbelievable torment. Do you know people? Do you know people who are suffering in torment? You may not know someone who's chained and like, you know, in the tombs, like wounding themselves. But, but you may know someone who it's crossed your mind that there may be something more going on. And I don't mean to raise an alarmist flag and for you to point to every person who has a personal problem or a mental issue or a struggle in some way as demon-possessed. But I also don't think you should be ignorant about the ways of the enemy. To understand that Jesus came to declare freedom for the prisoner. And if you are in Christ and Christ is in you, you are a part of that ministry of reconciliation, of declaring release for the prisoners. Second thing I want you to see about Jesus. Not only does he release this guy from his prison, and this guy loves Jesus unbelievably, just like Mary loved Jesus unbelievably, 
But Jesus also prepared this messenger for the message. He delivered the worst person in the region, and then he released him to be a messenger in ten cities. This is the last guy you would have chosen to hire, right? I mean, if this guy brought his resume in and sat down in front of you and, and you know, was kind of twitching in front of you without clothes on and chains and out of his mind with unkept... You wouldn't have been like, this is the guy that we want. This is the guy that we need in HR, like to take care of all of our personnel. This is not that guy. But listen to me in this way. This is kind of a dumb illustration, but if you wanted to sell like a weight loss product or like an exercise product... This is the right, like you choose somebody that is going to make the most impact so that when you see the before and after, this is like the poster child of Jesus chooses the craziest guy who is so possessed so that everybody in the Decapolis says, oh my word, if if Jesus can deliver this guy, then there's got to be hope for me. And this guy has an amazing impact on the Decapolis. What happens a few years later in the Decapolis? A guy named Saul is traveling on this road to Damascus, one of the ten cities. And on the road to Damascus, Paul, Saul, encounters the living Jesus, and he goes into the city, and we don't have any idea how believers got to Damascus other than this demoniac. And Jesus uh, tells a guy named Ananias, hey, go lay your hands on Saul, this guy who is absolutely tormented by demons. Go lay your hands on him because he is my chosen instrument to deliver the entire, like to take my message to all of Europe. This guy becomes a powerful voice in the ten cities a decade before the gospel probably reaches them in its fullness. Jesus prepares the messenger for the message. Jesus releases the prisoner. Uh, Third thing I want you to see about Jesus, you're never too far from God's grace. You're never too far from God's grace. Do you remember when Jim Dobson interviewed um, that guy in Florida in prison, the the man who was on death row for murder? Uh, I don't want to be too graphic with kids in the room, but this, Jesus went, I mean, James Dobson went in there to interview this guy, and he was like the worst criminal. Uh, and he got saved and began to, to um, confess and repent, and he gave this interview to Jim Dobson, and he began to, to declare faith in Jesus and talk about re- redemption and forgiveness. And the, the world kind of scratches their head and says, why would this guy get saved? The same with the guy that Jesus was crucified next to, right? He's on the cross as a convicted killer, and Jesus looks at him today, you're going to be with me in paradise. Saul was breathing out murderous threats and was taking people in captivity uh, and was throwing them in prison, and and it was approving of the death of Stephen. And so Saul, the worst guy, gets saved and becomes the greatest voice for the gospel. Um, We pray regularly for members of ISIS knowing that this pattern of God exists, that he takes the worst people and turns them into the greatest voices for the gospel. It's not outside the realm of possibility that some of our greatest evangelists in the next 20 or 30 years will come out of the most despicable, wicked, evil movement that the face of the earth knows today in ISIS. You pray for that, that God would take those people, but it, it proves the point that you're never too far from God's grace. And there are sinners in your life and in your circle that you can look at and say, oh my gosh, God would never save 
Him. I had dinner this past week with a high school friend. And I was one of those people that you would have thought, ah, I never thought Gibson would get saved. And sitting behind me in English class, this girl prayed for me every day in our junior year of English class until I got saved uh, in the seventh or eighth month of her time of praying for me. And when I got saved and became a believer and God began to deliver me for some of the things that I was involved in, uh, just people would say, I would have never thought that this would have been you. I would have never thought that God could save someone like you. You're never too far from God's grace. Jesus loves to save these kinds of people. He prepares the messenger for the message and he releases the prisoner. Those are beautiful things you need to see about Jesus. A couple of things you need to do in application for you personally. What do you need to do in light of Mark 5? Number one is fear not. And you can listen to a message like this and let your imagination run wild. Uh, And I want you to hear me really clearly, especially young people. You have no need to fear. Absolutely no need to fear. 1 John 4, 5 says that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. There is a vanquished, defeated foe. And if Jesus Christ resides within you, there is no need to fear. The kingdom of darkness has no power over you. Jesus Christ has defeated them. Resisting the devil, Watchman Nee wrote, Fear not. Whenever Satan works against God's children, he first has to secure some ground in them. Ephesians exhorts us not to give a place to the devil. But without a foothold, Satan cannot operate, so his first tempting of us will be in order to secure a ground, and his next move will be an assault on us from the ground he has already secured. Listen, our victory lies in not giving him any ground from the beginning. One ground, perhaps the largest that he seeks, is fear. Listen, believer, you can drive out fear Because Jesus Christ, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. He exhibited authority over nature. He exhibited authority over people. And he exhibited authority, definitive authority over all things dark. You have no need to fear. Jesus said um, that I will build my church and I will build it up to where? Up to the gates of Hades. That is the very front line of darkness. You can march confidently into the darkest places knowing that Jesus Christ is in you and He has, has defeated the enemy. Listen, this guy wanted nothing to do with Jesus. Right? As soon as Jesus came, this guy was cowering in fear. That same power resides within you according to Ephesians 1. Do you hear me clearly? Fear not. Do not let yourself be deceived into fearing something like this. You have no need for fear. Uh, A shark is powerful and terrifying. Anybody else have a fear of sharks? Fear of sharks is terrifying. But is a shark outside of the water terrifying? Not really. Not unless you walk right up to it and get, get really close to it. There's no reason. I mean, you could stand like five feet from a great white on the shore and like tease it, right? I mean, you could like, you know, it, there's no reason to be scared of a shark. This is the same kind of idea that a vanquished Satan is like a shark out of the water. He can't, he has no power. 
over you. And there's no reason to be afraid. Second thing you need to do, um, the second thing you need to do in response to this is diligently seek to be in the light and presence of Jesus, keeping your focus on Jesus. It's real easy to see and hear a message like this and to kind of be curious about spiritual forces and darkness and angels and demons and to kind of remove your focus off of Jesus and then to go explore these sort of outer places. Not once do we see the disciples of Jesus on some sort of random demon hunt, right? This isn't like some sort of Hollywood thing where all of a sudden all their attention is going toward the realms of darkness. Not even in this guy's life. He didn't come to Jesus and say, hey, release me to go and be a demon hunter in the ten cities. He said, let me be with you. So the second thing I want you to do in a result of this message is to focus on Christ, not on angels and demons. The first request of this guy is to be with Jesus. He begged him, let me go with you. You see, in light of who these things are, they're nothing compared to who Jesus is. Right? Hebrews 1 and 2 and 3 describe the supremacy of Christ. Listen, if you're not infatuated with the king over all the realms, then your infatuation with these sort of lesser things displays a sinful tendency in your life. You understand me? If you're infatuated with angels and demons, but you're not absolutely captivated with Jesus, then you're sinfully um, unbalanced in an unhealthy way. You should turn off religious programming, right? A lot of times the TV people get weird with deliverance ministries. Turn that garbage off. You need to be infatuated with Jesus and to focus on Him. There is in Colossians, um, called the Colossian issue, where Epaphras goes to Paul in Rome to tell him about certain mystics. Uh, And there was uncovered um, these mystical amulets in Colossae that have the, the names of saints, and it says, wear this to have power over darkness. Um, and then this sort of idea we understand from Colossians two eighteen through 19. He says, don't let anyone disqualify you. Paul writing to Colossians says, don't let anyone disqualify you. Insisting on asceticism. Asceticism is like that extreme form of um, going um, absolutely being so disciplined in the spiritual realm. He's saying, don't let people deceive you into being an ascetic Um, and focusing on the worship of angels, going on and on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by our sensuous mind. And listen to what he says, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments. What's he saying? Focus on Christ. Keep your attention so squarely on Jesus that there is no need to get curious and explore these other areas. The last thing I want you to do um, is to allow this to fuel your prayer life. Allow this to fuel your prayer life. Ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 through 18 describes um, our role in warfare. Describes our role in warfare against the spiritual forces of darkness. Paul writes 
In Ephesians 6.10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Right? He's describing different levels of demonic activity. And he's saying, therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done it all to stand firm. So how do you stand firm? He says, stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. So being girded with the belt of the word, the truth, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, meaning live your life in a righteous way. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, so that in all circumstances you can take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains. What is Paul saying? Describe this whole military outfit that with which we can fight the forces of darkness and extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one and, and all these things. What's he saying? He's saying, get dressed up in all these things so that you may, you may pray. You know, your greatest tool against the enemy is prayer. Do you know when you're most effective for the kingdom is when you're praying? When you're least effective in the kingdom is when you're the most prayerless. If you find yourself today praying very little, I just want you to see how ineffectual you are. You are so ineffectual when, when you just don't even pray, when, when there's nothing in your life that would cause you to uh, have an intimate relationship with God in prayer. Prayer is where the battle is. You have to lose this Hollywood idea of this demon slayer, exorcist type of lone ranger, spiritual warrior. Arm yourself in the spirit and pray in the spirit. You're the most powerful weapon in the hands of God when you're praying. You are armed with the breastplate of righteousness. You have the sword of the spirit, the gospel, and you're prayerful and saturated with the word, walking in faith. If you're doing all those things, you are the greatest threat to the kingdom of the enemy is prayer. And so allow a message like this to so penetrate that you are a praying Christian. Will you pray with me this morning? Jesus, we thank you for the example that we have. We thank you for the example that we have in your confrontation with darkness. And we pray that as we witness your confrontation with darkness, that we would not be ignorant about the schemes of the devil. That we would not lose focus on you. That we would not be ineffectual in the kingdom. But that we would see how wonderful, how powerful, your authority is over all things. I pray that as we seek to apply 
this message about what we should do, what we should understand, and how we should walk forward. I pray that you would give us wisdom and discernment that our minds would not drift into unfruitful, unhealthy ways by which we sensationalize the battle between good and evil. We thank you that we have all authority in Jesus Christ. We thank you that in his name and by his presence and by the power of the Holy Spirit that resides within you, that darkness has no power over us. And yet, Lord, there are Christians who are sidelined, prayerless, walking in unrighteousness and sin, completely ineffectual for the kingdom. I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen them, that you would move them to a place of prayer, to a place where they recognize those who are imprisoned, that they will do the hard work of prayer to release the prisoners. Lord, let this message fuel us to pray for those whom we know that don't know you, those who are held in captivity, whose eyes are blinded by the God of this world. I pray that you would open their eyes. And Lord, if there are people in this room who are clouded, oppressed, seeking release, I pray that you would release them In Jesus' name, amen.